Psalm 52 is a psalm that is attempting to wrestle with the evil in the world. It's a psalm attempting to wrestle with all of the terrible things that we read about. If you read the news, if you're on social media, you're going to come across inevitably just the deep brokenness that pervades our society. One of the major stories in the news in recent weeks has been about Jeffrey Epstein. If you followed that news story, you'll be familiar with what I'm talking about. He was the billionaire, or close to it, who lived in New York City, who was charged a couple of weeks ago with trafficking minors over a period of about 25 years. And it's been an open secret in the circles of the powerful and influential that this was something that he'd done. And a couple of weeks after this was first surfaced, we found out about the horrible secret plea deal that he struck in 2008 with who was then the district or the state attorney of Attorney General of Florida, Acosta, and who was now the labor secretary under President Trump, who almost entirely, it seems, let Epstein off the hook. And then just this week, news comes out about Epstein being found unconscious in his jail cell with marks around his neck. It's just one of those stories where you think the depth of evil here is disturbing, isn't it? That's just one of probably a number of examples that if we spent three minutes together, we could pick just from the news cycle in the past week. And so this psalm, along with many of the other psalms, are asking a question. How do people of faith wrestle with and deal with these sorts of horrible stories? How do we deal with the reality of evil in the world? We're in a series in the Psalms this summer, and we've seen, hopefully week in and week out, that the Psalms display for us the fullness of human life, in particularly the fullness of the human emotional life lived before God. And so far, we've looked at Psalms asking God to help us. We've looked at songs of praise and hope. We've looked at psalms for the brokenhearted and the depressed and more. And today we're looking at another category of psalms um, that Psalm 52 is one example of. And these are psalms that really are asking for God to show his perfect justice, to show his perfect justice against the evil in the world. They're psalms that are really prayers for righteousness to be upheld by God and wickedness to be destroyed by God. Now, if you've read through the Psalms before, you'll know that there are a lot of Psalms that deal with this subject. And also, I think, if we're honest, these Psalms make us a little bit uncomfortable. We don't really know what to do with them. Maybe even as Karen was reading Psalm 52, you were thinking, what in the heck? What in the world is this about? Uh, Reading these Psalms might make you uncomfortable, or at the very least, they might be confusing, and that's okay. Because what we want to try and do this morning is think a little bit about how can we fit these kinds of Psalms into our own lives. Is it legitimate for us to pray Psalm 52? For us to pray, basically, for the wicked to be destroyed by God? That makes us feel weird, right? That seems out of step with other parts of the Bible. And those are fair questions, by the way, if you're asking them. Also, by the way, I'm not going to answer all of your questions today in this sermon. If you want to talk more about those things, some of our elders would be happy to talk with you, I'm sure. Um, But what I do want to say, though, about this psalm and other psalms like it is that you have to read these psalms through the lens of the gospel. 
You have to read these psalms through the lens of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I hope to show you how to do that later on in our study of this chapter. But for now, four points uh, as we look at Psalm 52 this morning and as we cry out with David for God's justice to be done. First, I want to talk to you about the background. Second, the character of evil. Third, the judgment of evil. And then lastly, fourth, trusting God in evil. But first, we have to understand the background. If you looked uh, in your Bible, and Karen read this, at the very beginning of Psalm 52, there's what's called a, a superscription. Those are the words in smaller font at the very beginning of the psalm. And the superscription, in this case, sets the background or the context for when in David's life he wrote this psalm. And these are a part of the authoritative, inspired word of God, They were likely added by later editors of the Psalms, but those guys were working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this superscription for Psalm 52 tells us about what was happening in David's life when he wrote this. Look at what it says. It says, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, to understand what's going on in this Psalm, you have to get that story. So I'm going to tell you the story briefly for our first point. You can read about this story in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapters 20 through 22 or so. So David has been anointed as the king of Israel by Samuel, the prophet, already when he's writing this psalm. But he's not yet reigning on the throne. Saul, David's predecessor, is still the king. And uh, Saul has had David in his care and in his house for some time at this point. And Jonathan, Saul's son, is David's best friend. And Saul has watched David prosper and flourish. And it's clear that the Lord's anointing is on David. And so Saul, as the Lord has left him, becomes jealous and even malicious towards David. And this malice of Saul increases so much that David has to flee Saul's presence. And really, these chapters in 1 Samuel find David on the run with some of his loyal soldiers. And David, at one point, while he's fleeing from Saul, comes to a town called Nob, N-O-B, Nob, to the house of a man named Ahimelech, who is a priest. And Ahimelech's house is sort of like a temple where people would go and worship God in the Old Testament. And when David gets there, he and his men are famished. They're starving to death. And so they ask Ahimelech for food. And so Ahimelech gives them the holy bread, sort of like communion bread, because that's all that they had in the temple at that point. You might remember, by the way, that Jesus references this story in Mark chapter 2 when he's talking about the Sabbath. So Ahimelech takes care of David and David's men. He also gives David a weapon. He gives him the sword of Goliath, which David, of course, would have remembered very vividly in his mind from his battle with Goliath some years prior. And as you read this story, the narrator tells us that while this is happening, there's a man there at Ahimelech's house named Doeg. Doeg the Edomite, who is the head shepherd of Saul's sheep. Later in 1 Samuel, Saul is super frustrated. He's upset that he's been trying to hunt David down and kill him, but no one will tell him where David is. He can't find David. David has fled and is on the run. And so he's venting and ranting to his cabinet. Why won't anyone tell me where David is? And then suddenly a man raises his hand in Saul's presence and says, I have seen David just a few days prior 
It's Doeg, the Edomite. He says, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And so what does Saul do? He calls Ahimelech the priest and all of the minor priests in Ahimelech's temple to him, to appear before him. And there Saul accuses Ahimelech of treason. He says, you have denied my rightful rule and you are going to be punished. Well, Ahimelech gives very reasonable responses for why he was simply trying to care for David. He says, David's never done anything to offend you, Saul. I don't understand this, but Saul will hear none of it. Saul is completely off the rails at this point. And so Saul orders Ahimelech to be executed on the spot. But none of Saul's soldiers will do it. None of them are foolish enough or heartless enough to kill Ahimelech and all of these other defenseless and unarmed priests. So Saul turns to Doeg and he says to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests down. And so Doeg does it. He murders in cold blood 85 preachers of God's word, faithful ministers of God in the sight of Saul. And then Doeg returns to Nob and murders every single man, woman, child, infant, and animal in the whole town. Only one person escapes. He's a priest and also a son of Ahimelech. His name is Abiathar, and he shows up much in David's life from this point forward. Abiathar goes and finds David, and he says to David what's happened. And David says at the end of 1 Samuel 22, I knew on that day when I saw Doeg that he would surely tell Saul. And then David says, I've occasioned the death of all the people of your father's house. Stay with me, please. Don't be afraid. With me, you shall be safe. So that's the background of this psalm. This psalm is David's attempt to process the horrors of what Doeg and Saul have done. It's David's attempt to come to terms with the evil, the evil that he's witnessed here and the evil that if we live long enough, all of us are going to witness. So let's look at how David does that. We've seen the background, and then as we get into the psalm itself, David tells us about the character of evil. The character of evil, verses 1 through 4. Look at verse 1 with me. He says here, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Why do you boast of evil? That is kind of a, a phrase that has the sense of David saying, Doeg, you think you're so clever, don't you? You think you're so cunning. You're so proud of how you've gotten into Saul's attention. And now you're going to benefit from being really the murdering hand of the king. And wow, Doeg, David's writing, aren't you tough? Notice that he says, oh, mighty man. The greatest warriors in Israel in David's day were often called mighty men. But here, David's comments are... Uh, I think I can appreciate this. They're dripping with sarcasm. He's saying, whoa, how tough are you, Doeg? You murdered a bunch of preachers. Trust me, that's not very hard. Pastors are not fighters. You killed unarmed, innocent priests, and then you went and killed a bunch of women and children. You're so powerful. You're so tough. David is writing here about how Doeg's own cleverness is what he trusts in. And that really is the character of evil. The character of evil is to place your trust in your own cleverness and cunning and not in God. 
evil always angles for its own best interests. Evil always angles for its own best interests. The wicked see the world as really one huge zero-sum game. You either kill or are killed. That's the way Doeg thinks, and that's the way he acts. The evil person thinks there are weak and there are powerful, and the goal is to become one of the powerful and to stay there as long as possible at the expense of the weak. Now, this is something that we've seen throughout the history of the world, and it's something we see today unceasingly. Interestingly enough, modernized forms of evil often cover this ruthlessness with sort of a thin veneer of philanthropy or good citizenship. But at the end of the day, this is still rotten to the core. I read an article this week. Uh, It was an expose that came out some years ago in the New York Times. And the article is called Dangerous Business. It's about a company that makes cast iron pipes in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. It's called the McWayne Company. And the McWayne, the McWayne family was noted. They owned the company, and they had been noted for their quiet, civic-mindedness throughout generations in Birmingham. But this article exposed the conditions in which the company plants existed. And it called the company one of the most dangerous businesses in America. This article was long and intensively researched, and it detailed horrific examples of neglect and bullying and intimidation and cover-up, and then denial as various workers suffered serious injury in the plant or death over the years. The McVeigh family and the company would sweep all of this under the rug, all in interest of maintaining the financial bottom line. The article interviewed one former plant manager who had been employed by this company for 24 years. And he says this towards the end of the article. According to the leaders of this company, the people, they're nothing, he says. They're just numbers. You move them in and out. I mean, if they don't do the job, you fire them. If they get hurt, complain about safety, you put a bullseye on them. That's one of many examples we can come up with for how the character of evil sees the world as one huge zero-sum game. It's kill or be killed. David's reflecting on that here. He tells us also that the character of evil is found in the usage of words. Words. Look in verse 2. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So evil uses words to destroy, to deceive, and to devour. That's what David is saying here, right? And this is universally applicable to the work of evil. Jesus calls the devil the father of what? Lies, the father of lies. He was a liar in the very beginning. And so we see here Doeg exemplifying for us what the character of evil is always like. Evildoers love themselves more than they love the truth. And so like Doeg, evil uses words to harm others. Evil uses words to harm others. I know that if you've been around long enough, you yourself have been a victim of someone lying about you, of someone exaggerating a false claim about you, of someone misrepresenting you to someone else so that you are seen as worse off. 
It's common parlance in the world in which we live. John Steinbeck, in his great novel, East of Eden, illustrates the power of lying through the arch nemesis in the story, this lady named Kathy, who's a masterful manipulator. And at one point in the book, he writes about Kathy's character and her lies. Listen to what Steinbeck writes. Kathy's lies were never innocent. Their purpose was to escape punishment or work or responsibility, and they were used for profit. Most liars are tripped up either because they forget what they have told or because the lie is suddenly faced with an incontrovertible truth. But Kathy did not forget her lies, and she developed the most effective method of lying. She stayed close enough to the truth so that one could never be sure. The character of evil is seen in a ruthless self-advancement and a willingness to use lies to not speak the truth to get one step ahead. One of the things we can learn from these verses is that the scriptures repeatedly call evil out. It calls evil out for what it is. The Bible is not naive. The Bible does not shy away from describing the harsh reality of our world. And that's what we see here. Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. If you've been harmed or hurt by evil, If you've been harmed or hurt by lies, by people out for their own best interests only, the Christian faith offers you something extremely valuable. It offers you solidarity. Solidarity in your suffering with others who have suffered, and more importantly, with God. With God, who himself has been a victim of evil. The Bible understands what the world's really like. God understands what the world is really like. And he's not just going to stand by and let it go forever. That's what the rest of this psalm is about. We see the character of evil. Secondly, verse 5, 6, and 7 are about the judgment of evil. Here you can read David uh, reflecting on how God is going to treat evil, on how God's going to treat the wicked. And remember, remember, at the time of David writing this, he had no idea what was going to happen to Doeg. He had no idea what was to become of Doeg, but he trusts that God is not ever going to allow evil to prosper in the end. God is always in the end going to uphold what is right and what is good. And so look at what David says. He uses four verbs in these verses. All of them are really strong to um, describe how God in justice will act against evil. Look at what the verbs are. David says, God will break you down. He will snatch you. He will tear you from your tent and he will uproot you from the land of the living. One commentator says, it's impossible that words can express a more entire and absolute destruction. Absolute destruction is what David says the destiny of evil is. And so what David's doing here, remember, as he processes and reflects what's happened to him, is he's hoping He's hoping in the perfect justice of God. Do you see that? He's hoping in God's perfect justice. If you're new to the church or haven't been around the church for a while, I think this is an underappreciated aspect, an underappreciated aspect of the Christian faith. Uh, And that is a longing for the justice of God to be done. Uh, Without question, that is a part of the good news, a part of the gospel. Jesus repeatedly says the kingdom of God is at hand. 
the kingdom of God is coming. Now, what that means, among other things, is that God is going to establish a perfectly just and righteous world one day. That's why in those famous Christmas passages, in the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we read Mary, the mother of Jesus, for example, saying something like this, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. What's the point? The point is that through faith in Jesus Christ, those who are connected to Jesus can rejoice that one day God is going to make everything right. Evil is not going to win. Righteousness will rule the day. That's what David is reflecting on here. It's what he's preaching to himself through this psalm. It's what he hopes for, and it's what we can hope for as well. With sure confidence, when we witness great evil in the world, or when we're victims of great evil in the world. David also says, verse 6, The righteous shall, shall see and fear and shall laugh. They shall laugh. That verse mirrors a, a psalm Will preached on a few weeks ago, Psalm 2, where we see that God laughs from heaven at the wicked, knowing that he will have victory in Jesus. So surely part of what David means here is that the justice of God, the justice of God is intended to serve as an example for those of us who are following Jesus, for the people of God, for the righteous. It's, it's to serve an example sort of in the sense that we see that God is going to make everything right, that those who are unjust and wicked are not going to win at the end of the day. It's kind of like, you know, the bully that always beats up on kids on the schoolyard or on the playground when he finally, or when a kid finally comes to school that's bigger than the bully, right? And the bully gets his comeuppance. The bully finally gets what's coming to him. Everyone laughs. That's part of it for sure. But I think a part of the laughter here is, is the laughter of joy. It's not just the laughter of revenge. Part of what David is saying here is that one day, all of us will see a fuller picture of what God is doing in the world right now. We're never going to understand it all. We're never going to be omniscient like God is. But one day we're going to have a fuller picture of how God right now even works through evil to make his own greatness and glory and grace known. One day, when we see the story of this world, of this world um, fully written, so to speak, when we see the story of the world fully written, when we understand more of the author's purposes, we will laugh. We'll laugh with joy. We'll laugh at how majestically God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and we will give him the glory. It reminds me of a famous scene at the end of uh, The Return of the King, the final of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Tolkien writes, just after Frodo and Sam have come off of Mount Doom and they're back in Rivendell safe. Here's what Tolkien says. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed, but over him gently swayed wide beech boughs and through their young leaves, sunlight glimmered green and gold and all the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. And then Gandalf speaks. A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. He laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. 
And as Sam listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known, but he himself burst into tears. And then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and laughter welled up. Unquestionably, that is a part of the laughter being referred to here by David. One day after God makes everything new, when his kingdom has come in fullness, we, his people, will rejoice. We'll rejoice and laugh that he has conquered evil. David reflects on the character of evil. He reflects on God's perfect judgment against evil. And then lastly, we see in verses 8 and 9, David trusting God. He trusts God in the middle of evil. Uh, Contrasted with the wicked, by the way, in verse 7 we read that the wicked will be uprooted from the land of the living. But David, about himself, in verse 8 says, I am like a green olive tree. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Now, olive trees are apparently some of the uh, longest living trees. And furthermore, in the ancient Near Eastern world in which this is written, olive trees represented uh, lavishness and delight. And so David is able to believe here. That's what this image means. He's able to believe here in the middle of this great evil that God is going to be faithful, that God is steadfast in his love. I wonder if you can believe that about God. When you're undergoing evil, when you see evil around, when you see injustice, can you trust that God is still on his throne? Can you believe that God knows what he's doing? David says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever. I will wait for your name for it is good. Now, those are great verses. So how do we do that? How do we, like David, trust God in the middle of evil? Well, like I said at the beginning, as we wrap up here, we have to see that we can only do that by looking at this psalm through the lens of Jesus. By looking at this psalm through the lens of Jesus, Jesus really is the greatest singer of this psalm. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is really the one writing these psalms and this psalm. Think about it with me. David here was wronged, right? He was betrayed by Doeg the Edomite, but Jesus, Jesus was wronged and betrayed by all of his countrymen. Doeg lied about Ahimelech and about David, but much more did evil people and wicked people lie about Jesus in Matthew. When Jesus is before Pilate, all of the crowd says he deserves death. The high priests say he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and they struck him. David is able to say here that he's like an olive tree in the house of God, even though he's been subject to great wickedness. But Jesus, Jesus was hung on a tree outside the house of God after he was subjected to great wickedness. And really, David can only sing Psalm 52 with such confidence that God will be steadfast in his love to him. David can only do that because God gave Jesus his son over in love as the propitiation the payment for our sins. It's because Jesus was a victim of injustice that we know we will receive justice. 
It's because the cross is the place where God's justice and mercy meet that we can have full confidence that God's justice and mercy will meet at the end of all things when Christ comes back. We can be certain that God will deal with this world rightly and justly because of what he has done in Christ. Really, that's the only thing at the end of the day that separates David or any other person from someone like Doeg, strange as that may seem. But think about it. The prior Psalm, Psalm 51, this is Psalm 52. In Psalm 51, you know what David's doing? He's confessing his sin of murder and adultery. David is really no different than Doeg before God, but the one difference is that David goes to the steadfast love of God seen in Jesus in repentance and in faith. David flees to the righteousness of Christ available for him for free by connecting to Christ through trust. And because David has done that, he can say at the end of this psalm confidently, I will thank you. I will thank you, God, forever. So David, David can pray for justice in the face of evil because of what has occurred in Jesus Christ. And it's the same for us today. We trust in Jesus by faith. And we know that we are recipients of his free grace, of his steadfast love forever. And we also know by faith that one day all evil will be done away with and God will be all in all. And so this psalm is true for you now, no matter what you're facing. It will always be true for you, no matter what you've undergone. One day God will make all things new and right every wrong. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.